great to see you all this morning. Uh, turn, if you will, to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6 as we uh, continue to worship um, the Lord through the reading and, of his word and the proclamation of the gospel uh, as we continue, as we've done uh, through singing and prayer. Now, uh, let me pray uh, once again as you turn to uh, Deuteronomy 6. Father God in heaven, you are a great and glorious God. And uh, Father, it's with great joy we can come uh, gathered here together as your people Uh, celebrating who you are and what you've done throughout generations to proclaim the goodness of your name and the goodness of your character to the nations. God, as you have um, done amazing things through history, as we've seen recorded in your scriptures, and and Lord, as we can even recount through our own lives the ways that you have been at work and are at work. So Lord, now I pray that uh, as you've brought us here together, we would hear a word from you through your scriptures. God, that your Holy Spirit who inspired These words to be written down will open our minds to understand your word. God, that you would open our hearts to receive the gospel, that you would mold us and shape us by your grace, by your spirit, to be more like your son, Jesus. God, I pray that we would leave this place having encountered you through your word and through worship together. Uh, And God, that we would walk away changed. And I pray that you would do all things for your glory and for our joy and that the good news of Jesus would go out from this place to the nations. We ask this in his holy name. Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 through 9 today. Now this is the commandment, the statues and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statues and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, and a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and these shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is God's word. Friends, today as we look at Deuteronomy 6, we see that there's a commandment from God to his people that's indicative of a new life of those who are loved by God and who love God and love others. And this is good news for us. And As we look at this, I want to ask us all today to kind of evaluate our lives according to God's word and see what do our lives look like. When we look at scripture today and we hear God's great love toward his people and we see how they are to live differently because of that, does this describe your life? Does it describe your life to love the Lord your God? Is your, is your life uh, displaying your love for the Lord? Does your life display love for others in your home, in your family, in your neighbors? And if it doesn't, I don't want you to despair, nor do I want us to leave this place today saying, well, you know, here's nine more verses of the Bible. I want to live my life by these bullet points, you know, 
Jesus life hack, right? No, I don't want us leaving here trying to do better and try harder. I don't want us leaving here trying to say, okay, I I see what it means to live a certain way. I'm going to do my best to get there. But rather, I want us to see God's goodness to his people throughout all generations and see that how Jesus stands in the gap for us on our behalf to get us to where we can't get on our own, to draw us into a way of life that we cannot achieve on our own. You see, this is one of the most uh, important and familiar passages, perhaps, in the book of Deuteronomy. Maybe you're familiar with this. Maybe you've uh, read this or recited this before. Maybe you've seen it cross-stitched on the wall of someone's home. Maybe you have it written down or, or something. This is a familiar passage uh, that is known as the Shema, which comes from the Hebrew word to hear. This is a, a familiar passage. Uh, recitation that would be recited even as part of daily prayer for a first century Jewish person. And it was a reminder of who God is and what he's done. It is an opportunity as you pray and to recite, it's to remind the hearer who God is and what he's done for his people, a reminder of a new identity that we have and a new community that plays out in all areas of life and family and work and neighborhood and culture. You see, you and I today often compartmentalize our faith. We say, well, I have my work life over here and my family life, my faith over here, and and we kind of compartmentalize it. But as we look at Scripture, we see that that God's love for his people is is transforming every area of life. There's there's no way that you can live as a Christian and say, well, this is my, my Christian life over here, but here's my work life and here's my school life and some hobbies. But rather, the gospel transforms us and shapes us to have a totally new identity. And this shapes how we live life in community with others and family and neighborhood and church and impacting our culture. And we see this in the first couple of verses here today, that God is speaking, has, has given commandments and instruction to his people through Moses. And there is a reminder uh, that I want us to see in the first three verses. Let's look at this again. Now, this is the commandment, the statues and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that all your days may be long. Hear, therefore, Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you and a land flowing with milk and honey. So we see even the first couple verses there, Scripture is, is instructing God's people, look, you're not going to do these things to earn the favor of God. You're not going to do these things to, to get this land. You're not going to do these things um, so that you may multiply great, greatly, but rather, it says, uh, this is based on the, on the promises of God. Scripture says, look, the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you this. He, he has said, God's people free from bondage in Egypt. And, and we can't ever approach commandments as do this so that you... This thing better stay up. Okay. We can't ever approach Scripture as saying, I want to do these things so that I can become a child of God. I want to do these things so that I can earn the reward of God. And so that's not what we see even here In Deuteronomy chapter 6, God's people had already been set free from bondage. They had already been set free from slavery. They had already been set free from uh, captivity in Egypt. So so they had already, God had already done that for them. But with that, God says, I want you to live differently. He's, He's already said, I'm your God, you're my people, you're not earning that. It's an act of grace. 
You have this identity because I'm God and I've done this for you. Therefore, you are my people. And therefore, I promise I'm going to give you this land. And therefore, I will multiply you greatly. I've made that promise to your fathers, to your family. My word is good on that. Because of that, because of that grace, because of that good news, I want you to live differently. And here's the commandment. Here's the statutes. Here are the rules. This is the way I want you to live. Not so that you will be my people, but because you are my people. Are you with me? We have to approach it looking at it that way, because if we approach it as, well, let me just do this checklist, X, Y, and Z, you'll miss the gospel. You'll miss the intimacy with Christ. You'll miss the, the true point of it all. And we're going to see how Jesus even brings this up in the New Testament. So hang with me. But let's first see what life looks like as God's people. Having faith in the faithfulness of God, trusting in His promises, trusting in His provision, and out of that, living obediently. You see, God had a plan, not only for His people, but to display His goodness to the nations through His people. I mean, God was doing amazing things for Israel to show off His greatness so that Israel would love Him and follow Him and change, but also that other nations would know who God is and how God is. And that applies for you and I today in Christ. So we start this passage of Scripture today, these first nine verses, with the understanding that God has done something great for his people. And he's doing so to show off his goodness and to shape how they live so that other nations would know how good he is. And the first thing that is here is an instruction, a commandment, to do these things that God is teaching you because he has been faithful, because he has promised because he has given them this land. And there's an instruction that there will be a great legacy left behind, not only for God's people, but for their children and their children's children and their children's children. So first and foremost, we see who God is and what he's done and the new identity. And it comes from remembrance. You see, many people in the first century, if you were a devout uh, Jewish person, you would recite this even as part of your daily prayer. And it was not meant to be some uh, religious rigmarole, but rather it was meant to be remembering who God is and what he's done. So I want to ask you this. How, how, just think of something in your mind that God's done for you. And you're all alive. Get off the list. This mic isn't working. Not really, in a good way. I will pro- project my voice. Think of something that God has done for you. Just amazing. Just, just think back in your life. God has just intervened in an amazing way. Now, we're all alive, so we can thank God that we're living. But think about it. Maybe you're here today, and you, and you have a spouse at a season you didn't think you would be married. Or maybe you have children, and you didn't know if you would have children. Maybe uh, God has, has totally radically freed you from an addiction or from some bondage. Or maybe he's healing you from your past uh, being abused or some sin issue that you've had. Just think about what God has done for you. Think about that. We're coming up on the season of Thanksgiving, and often we um, get caught up in, the, in the, the melee of shopping. Or I don't know if it's difficult for you, but if you have a large family, it can be hard to schedule who you're going to see and when, and everybody's feelings get hurt, and everybody fights over who's going to eat where, and it's just beautiful, and it's the gospel. But, um, so we're coming up on a season of Thanksgiving, and let's pause and think back, who, who is God and what he has done for his people. And we see that Moses instructing the Israelites, say, hey, I want everybody to listen. He says, hear, O Israel. 
We are going to do these commandments and statutes that the Lord has commanded because he has set us free, because he is our God, because we are his people, because he has made good on his promises and will continue to make good on his promises. He's giving us this land, so we want to obey because of who he is and who we are. So you and I today approach it the same way. Not so that we can earn God's favor, but because in Christ we have it. So here's what Scripture says. This is a life that's indicative of those who have been saved and rescued by God. Verses 4 through 6 say this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk in the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and your gates. First, we see that a life that's been changed, rescued by God, is one that loves God. You see, verses 4 through 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Love is a sign of covenant loyalty. It's not merely an emotion. It is not merely uh, something that is uh, contingent on circumstances. Uh, we have so many songs in our media. We have so, many, uh, li- so much literature. We have so many uh, waves of feelings of emotions that, that love uh, doesn't even mean what we think it means anymore. I mean, when I say love, what do you think of? You probably think of a movie or a song. Like the new Taylor Swift album is full of, yeah, I'm not ashamed. Or maybe it's an emotion you feel like, man, I just really love broccoli. I really love chocolate. I love my day off. I love hanging out with my family. I love surfing. I love whatever it may be. Or I I love hanging out with these people. And often, love the circumstances. Right? You say, I will love this thing in so much as I get from it what I want. And that can play out in our relationships too, right? How many times have you said, I, I, I will love this person as long as she doesn't do this or he doesn't do that? Right? Maybe you've been dating someone. You're like, I really care about this person, but the second they get on my nerves, I'm out. You see, that's not love. Biblically, love has to do with covenant loyalty. It has to do with something greater than just emotion and circumstances. It has to be based on someone much greater than our own whimsical selves. And we see that God has shown his faithfulness, his loyalty to his people despite their idols and rebellion. I mean, God set his people free from bondage in Egypt and all the while they gripe about, well, we should have just stayed enslaved because that way we'd have had better meals at night. I mean, we should have just stayed in Egypt even though we were uh, working ourselves to death for Egypt. But, you know, at least there we had this, we had that. And so you and I can fall on that as well. And all the while God is saying, you know, my people are fickle, but I'm going to love them. I will be loyal to them. I will bless them abundantly. I will, I will seek their good for my glory. And so Scripture says, look, if God has done that, if God has said, hey, I am your God, you are my people, I've done these things for you, Scripture says that we are to love God. Love God, not just when things are going well, like, oh, God, me and God are tight, we're BFF, right, because things are going well, but even when things are not going well. Right? If you're married, this probably resonates with you a little bit, or if you have seen a marriage that is healthy, you know. 
in sickness and in health, richer for poor. Right There is loyalty there. It is a covenant beyond circumstances. And Scripture says, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. First of all, that statement is a unique statement for God. Right? In a culture that was, um, had many gods, many deities, many religions, Moses writes, Yahweh, our covenant-keeping God, God our Father, God our King, He is the one and only true God. It's a very monotheistic proclamation amidst a culture that had a plethora of gods and religions. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. You see... Not just about your emotions, but it's about your will, it's about your motivations, it's about every aspect of your life. And so it is a Godward orientation that you're saying, I want to love the one true God more than anything and anyone else. I will be loyal to the one true God no matter what. I will love the Lord with my intellect, with my emotions, with my, with my strength, with my motivations, what I do with my hands, what I do with my brain, what I do with my time, what I do with my resources. That's what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. So I want to ask you, as we approach this scripture today and all of scripture, do you love God? Do do you love the one true God with covenant loyalty? Is he the focus and orientation of your entire life? Not just, well, you know, I love the Lord with my mind, but not with my emotions. That's, that's, that's actually very popular. I know lots of people that are like, well, I'm so intellectually whatever, and then like emotionally they're a disaster. But man, love the Lord with your, God's emotional, man, come on. I'm all hippie, right? Meanwhile, I know folks that love God with maybe their emotions, but not really their intellect. They're like not sharpening their mind toward Godward things. Do you love the Lord your God with your, with your body, with your physicality? Do you love the Lord your God with your motivations? Because I'm convinced that it's easier to approach this as a checklist and do things in our own strength, but with bad motivation. I could tell you, if you really want to love God, you need to memorize X number of Bible verses, you need to give X amount of dollars, you need to show up to X amount of events, and you need to do this thing 15 minutes a day. And you could do it. All you need is a little bit of coffee. And it's not biblical. It's not the gospel. We're going to see in a minute how there were guys even in Jesus' day that were doing the right things with wrong motivations and missing intimacy with the Lord. Because you could do the right things with the wrong motivations. And it looks pretty cool. It looks very good and proper and religious. But at the end of the day, you miss intimacy with the Lord. And that's what this is all about. So I want to ask you, do you love the Lord your God with your whole being? Do, do Do you really love him? I mean, you could show loving things. Like, it's like this. Gentlemen, have you ever had a bad day? Probably. Have you ever maybe had an altercation with your... It's not a true story. It's a made-up story. Maybe had a, a rift with your spouse. And, and, and you go to work one day and you're like, man, things are not right with me and my spouse. And you show up at home and you say, I brought flowers for you. Here are the flowers. I did the husbandly thing. Look at the flowers. I love you. And then you like, you know, go out in the back porch and, you know, 
yell and kick and scream. Or wives, maybe you said, you know, I'm just, I want to love my husband because he's my husband and he's, he's a jerk. Maybe dad, and um, you sabotage something. I don't know what you would do. Like I said, this is a made-up story, so I have nothing to draw from. My wife has never done that, but like, you know, maybe put some bad-smelling thing on his tie so that like it worked the next day. He's like, what is that smell? Or maybe, you know, you said, well, you know, honey, I helped you out the way, you know, I helped you out this way. I, I, I did your laundry. I helped you out to try to get you ready for work. So what's the deal? But all, all the while, the intimacy is not there. Have you ever been there? I mean, it happens in relationships, broken relationships. You can do the right thing with the bad motivation and miss the intimacy that's intended there. You can show up with flowers with a bad attitude and your marriage is not good, you know. You can um, do loving type things and just totally miss it. And that happens constantly with our relationship with God, which is why it cannot be based on our emotions. It cannot be based on our own strength. It's why the commandment to love the Lord your God with all your might, soul, and strength is not based on you. That's why you have to start verse 4 actually with verses 1 through 3. That's why the commandment rests on who the Lord, the God, our God is. That's why the commandment is, you will do this commandment, these statutes, these rules God commanded me to teach you in the land that you're going to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God, your son, your son's son. Keep all these statutes and his commandments all the days of your life, that it will be long. Verse 3, Hear, O Israel, be careful to do them, that it may go well, that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord the God of your fathers has promised. Are you with me? If we obey the Lord, if we do the commandments, the statutes of the Lord, it comes based on his promise of who he is and what he's done. Intimacy with the Lord. Because we're not going to do religious things and miss that. That would be goofy. So I want to ask you this. What does your life look like? Is, is your life riddled with good religious things but badly motivated? Are you doing good things and trying to show love for God but missing the intimacy because you, you're showing up to the Lord with flowers, with a bad attitude? Or is your life motivated in every way toward the Lord? Soul, mind, strength. Is something distracting you, an idol, a sin, some selfishness? We're not going to stop there. That's a big one, but we're going to see how it points us to Jesus in a second. Verse 7 says this, You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk in the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You see, love for God is expressed not only between you and the Lord, but it's expressed out in how you do family. But if God has saved you, if he set you free, saying, look, God has set you free from Egypt. He's given you a land. He's making good on your promises. It's going to go well with you. So here's the command. I want you to love the Lord with every ounce of your being and everything. Every ounce of your motivations need to be Godward in orientation. You need to do that because he loves you, because he saved you, because you are his people, Israel. Also, you need to teach these things to your children. You need to teach them diligently to your children. You need to talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. It's a pretty cool statement. I'm a father. I have four children. And I really like this because I approach it and I look at it and say, what does it mean to teach diligently? Does it mean that you know, every hour on the hour we, we 
recite the Shema? I mean, uh, every hour on the hour, what does it mean to be diligent in our teaching? And I love how this goes. It's, it's an ongoing as you go about your life. That's, that's what that statement means. It means to, as you rise, as you, as you go about the way, that, that statement just changed everything. And when you walk by the way. So it doesn't mean like, okay, we're going to do family devotions only at this time. Do them at bedtime, morning, dinner time, whenever your family has agreed. But as you go about life, I mean, as you go by the way, because you can have morning devotions, evening devotions, but everything in between be devoid of Godward orientation, and you miss everything. Like, this is what Jesus did. If you read the Gospels, it's really cool, because Jesus sometimes was standing on a mountain, saying, I'm going to feed 4,000, I'm going to teach these guys, and then I'm going to go into the synagogue and bust open Isaiah, and it's awesome. But then if you read the Gospels, it'll say, like, Jesus and his disciples were, like, walking down the street. And, you know... Jesus said, look at this person, yada, 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 taught them. Or they're like walking through a field, and Jesus like snatches a head of grain and says, hey, everybody, come here. Talks about the kingdom of God as he's like snatching wheat off of a plant. That's pretty cool. Right? Even the Great Commission, when the Lord says, go therefore and make disciples, uh, you know the, the word go is not the imperative. The imperative word there is make disciples. If you read it in the Greek, it's actually like, hey, make disciples as you go. It's kind of like a passive, just, hey, as you go about life, make disciples. It's different, right? It changes everything. If your orientation is toward God, loving God with every ounce of your being, with your soul, with your mind, with your strength, as you you go about life, you're going to talk about what God's doing. right? As you go about your way, Scripture says in Deuteronomy, Displaying a Godward orientation from sunup, sundown, and everything in between. So, I want to ask you this: like, if you don't have kids, don't check out. There's like 40 kids right down the hall there, and many of you serve in there, and you have opportunities to invest in their lives. And God may give you children at some point, or maybe you work with kids in your job. This is an opportunity for you as you go to really incorporate pointing children to see how God is at work. I mean, it's, it's really cool. I like to go for like nature hikes with my children. And, you know, we don't have to say, here's a butterfly. Children, did you know that on the seventh day of the Lord, you know, you don't have to like bust out some random thing. But it's really cool to, to expose children to the wonder of what God has done. It's really cool just to say, look, can you believe that God would create a giraffe? What in the world? That's a weird looking animal. God has a great imagination. Or like, there's not giraffes behind our house, by the way, but like as you go on a nature hike, and flowers or, or whatever. And lately it's been, with our older children especially, they've been, they've been catching up on, on like conversations we've been having. Like my wife and I are talking about, you know, making plans to see people, relatives during the holidays or just whatever. And our kids are like tuned in. It's like, hey, hey, how about that guy? We have lots of relatives, some who, who are not believers. And so we're trying to think, how can we, how can we like show the love of the Lord during the holidays toward family members who, who maybe don't know, don't know the Lord, you know, and our kids are like tuning into this. So I want to ask you, what, what rhythms do you have in your family as you go to point those in your household to the Lord? It could be something very structured. Maybe you do structured Bible study times. If that works for your family, great. But everybody has some sort of family rhythm. One of my favorite things to do every day is to get pick up my oldest daughter from school. I hate the carpool line with a 
passion. But when she gets in the vehicle, we have a five-minute drive home, and I always take the long way home and purposely try to get stuck behind a bus or something because that is some of the sweetest conversation to recount what went on during my daughter's day and to try to infuse it with some gospel conversation when she's learning to forgive those who maybe hurt her on the playground or learning to you know, be patient with some rowdy person on the playground or, or what have you. So what, what rhythms do you have in your family to point those in your family to the Lord? As you go about the way, how are you teaching your children? As you, as you get up in the morning, as you go to bed at night, as you walk on the way, how are you teaching your children? Next we see this. There's a personal discipline that comes. If God has rescued you and saved you and, and is saying, love me with all your heart, with every ounce of your being, you're going to teach that to your family. But also there's a personal rhythm that's involved here. And this is where we can easily get misconstrued. You, sh- you shall bind them as a sign. Verse 8, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Culturally, uh, there are these things called phylacteries that... Um, Maybe you've seen them in movies or read about them, but um, devout Jewish folks would actually have written down pieces of Scripture and put them in a little box and wear them on their heads or on their hands. All right. It was meant to be an outward sign of devotion to the Lord. It was meant to be something good, but like all things uh, human, they can get a little misconstrued. And so in Jesus' days, there were uh, guys walking around with these on, and, and, and people would say, look, I'm, I'm devout. Look how devout I am. I have, and actually, they would write this Shema and put, you know, put it in a little box on their head or on their hands. And look, look how devout I am. I am a devout follower of the Lord. I have done exactly what he said to do. I have put his word on my forehead and on my hand. But meanwhile, their hearts were dark. Meanwhile, other areas of their lives were not pointing to the Lord. And in fact, they're having conversations face to face with Jesus and they didn't know he was Jesus. They didn't know he was the Christ. They didn't know that he was God incarnate. They missed the intimacy even though they were doing the right thing. So doing the right outward sign may not even be a reality of your heart. What's more importantly is an inward change. In fact, if you read in scripture, as God goes on to say, hey, look, uh, I'm not only going to have I'm going to write my law on the hearts and minds of my people. If you read in Jeremiah 31, God says that. He says, hey, look, at first they're writing it down and putting it on their head and their hand, but you know what? A day is going to come where I'm going to write my law on their hearts and on their minds. And he makes good on that promise in Christ. 1 Timothy 4.6 says this, Keep a close watch on yourself and the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourselves and your hearers. So I want to ask you, what personal discipline do you have to foster love for the Lord? What is it? For some of you, you like very structured Bible study. I encourage you to dive into that. Some of you like more discussion-oriented. Some of you guys uh, have a hard time with that. You're like, man, it's just I just don't like to read. Uh, what do you listen to? Do, do you podcast? And let me tell you, you can make good use of your community. There are great resources online. You can podcast great preachers. You can listen to seminary classes. You can download great music that will uh, encourage you, your mind and your heart toward the Lord. So what personal disciplines are you fostering your heart for God with, like internally? Now, if somebody shows up next Sunday with like a phylactery here and here, we're not going to make fun of you. 
but we'll just say, what's the condition of your heart? Because you can all show up with that, but if your heart is far from the Lord and other areas of your life, because um, what it just doesn't, it doesn't add up. I have a friend, a dear friend from college that I worked with um, for a while in college, and she uh, was like super Christian, right? I mean, she and her boyfriend went on all these mission trips, and they were like mega involved with their church, and they did everything right, everything right, constantly. They were just like, you know, they were a few years younger than me, and I was just intimidated because I'm like, you guys are like spiritual giants, and you're like 20. And um, lost touch after college and ran into her a few years later, and she said, you know, I just, I'm, I've walked away from the faith. I was like, what, what happened? Did like something happen? Was there a straw that broke the camel's back that you said, I'm not going to follow the Lord anymore? And you know what it was? It was not a straw that broke the camel's back. There was no one big cataclysmic thing that she walked away from the faith. Rather, all the while she was doing the regimented Christian things devoid of a heart for the Lord. I mean, she was doing the modern-day Christian phylacteries, if you will. She was doing mission trips because that's what Christians do. She was in leadership because that's what Christians aspire to be in leadership, right? She was having her quiet time. She only listened to certain kind of music. And it actually drove her further from the Lord than actually fostering a love. Devastating. So I want to ask you, what's the condition of your heart? What personal disciplines do you have? I mean, phylactery or not, what is it that's fostering your relationship with the Lord? But I want us to see how this all comes in verse 9 together. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. I like this. We don't have any Hebrew written on our doorposts at our house in Forest Creek. But this is a statement not just about the actual tangible writing scripture on the walls of your house, but it is a statement about your life that's been changed radically will look different if God has saved you and said, I'm your God, you're my people, therefore you will love me with everything about your life is going to point to me. And you're going to teach this to your kids just as you go about life, whether no matter where you go to school or what neighborhood you live in, there's opportunities you can point children to me. And by the way, you're going to foster personal discipline in your heart, in your, in your hands, you know what I mean? What you do, what you think about is going to point toward me. And then there's going to be an outward display of this toward other people. See, you shall write them on the doorpost of your house, and on your gates. That is symbolic. The doorpost of your house is like so that your neighbors can see God's faithfulness to you and thus come to know the Lord. On your gates is actually a statement, not just like the gates in your neighborhood, but that's the gates outward to the city, like out to culture. Because in, if you were to look at like the, the, the map of uh, a first century city, you would see that there would even be clusters of houses and families, but the gates were actually walled outward to those who were outside of that family, even outside of the city. So that if passers-by were traveling from different cultures, bringing different things, they would see literally on your gates that you belong to the Lord. And so for you and I today, this has implications for us to love the Lord our God, to foster that love in our family, to foster that love personally, and to foster that love toward our neighbors, to the city, and to the culture, and beyond. I want to ask you, in what ways are you engaging your neighbors for the gospel? Are you? Again, it's an as-you-go kind of thing. It's not, 
you don't have to like knock on the door and say, okay, it's my duty to share my faith with you once a year. But just as you go, like as, as your neighbor says, hey, over there, like just do you have those relationships? Are you having conversations to point people to the Lord? What does it look like for you at work or at school or with culture? What, where has God placed you? How has God wired you to plug in to display his goodness? See, the thing I love about the gospel is it paints with such a broad brush. But I think it, it, we, we tend to narrow it down and say, well, I mean, I don't know about you, but like the second I started walking with the Lord, I like, I severed, this was so foolish, man, in hindsight. But I just totally severed ties with every cultural in I had for the gospel. I was like, if I'm going to be, belong to the Lord, I'm going to go to seminary, and I'm never going to go there again, and I'm going to move as far away as humanly possible. Was, this was like 12 years ago, and, or no, like 15 years ago. And so the Lord's like, no, you're not. You're going to stay where, where I put you, and you're going to foster those relationships for the gospel. So what does this mean for you and I today? How does this point to Jesus? If we're to love the Lord of God with every ounce of our being, we're to foster this love in family and personally with our neighbors and in the city and culture. We're to display God's covenant goodness so that others can come to know him. Mark chapter 12 in the Gospels, this happens with Jesus. It says, One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked. So Jesus was like teaching a bunch of guys and doing awesome at it. And the scribe comes up, this guy who, who knows the scriptures, man. This guy, the guy coming up to Jesus knows the scriptures better than any of us in this room. Okay, let's just assume that. Comes up, says, which commandment is the most important of all? You have to hear the motivation behind that. It's not a bad guy. He's actually a really good guy saying, I want to do what the Lord wants me to do. So I want to know what is the most important because I'm doing all of these great things, but what is the one I need to focus on so that I can please the Lord? It's not a bad place to be. In fact, I think most of us in this room are either there or have been at some point, right? Just you want to do what's the most important thing I need to do right now is what this guy says. Jesus says, the most important is this. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. All right, sounds familiar? Jesus quoting Deuteronomy because he's awesome. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. See, the gospel is simple. Not simplistic, but simple. I mean, Jesus says, look, I can... It's, I can give you a 600 checklist of things to do and to not do if you want to be a Christian, or I can put it to you this way. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. could have just said that this morning. We could have just walked away, but I wanted to show how it fits into Deuteronomy, how it fits into the biblical narrative. You see, Deuteronomy is pointing us to Jesus, and Jesus answers answers the point of God's law from Deuteronomy with this statement here. As good religious guys who are saying, look, we're keeping Deuteronomy, we have phylacteries, we're doing what, what God wants us to do. In fact, we want to do it better, Lord. How can we do better? Because we're doing it well, we want to do it better, so what's the most important thing so that we can do that thing? And Jesus blows it out of the water by saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's summing up loving, it's the Shema, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
writing the gospel in your doorposts and gates. <laughs> See, in context, Jesus is revealing that he is God. He's revealing his lordship over his people. He's reorienting the hearts of God's people back to God. Jesus doesn't rebuke the guy and say, hey, you moron, you're doing it wrong. He says, no, you're actually doing it so right that you're missing intimacy with me. <laughs> you're focused on the law to the point that you're not seeing who the law points to. You're looking at the sign rather than who the sign points to. And Jesus is standing before the guy saying, you need to love the Lord and you need to love others. And in that moment, I imagine a good religious person would say, right, and walk off and say, I'm going to go do that, do that better, do try harder. Or walk away in utter despair saying, I've done so well, but I'm still missing it. That's a good place to be. Because if you're here in this room saying, I wanna, I've been a, a lousy Christian, I'm so glad. Faith is hard. Is it not? Doing Christian things is difficult. It, it's hard to love your neighbor when you're tired and you've had a bad day. It's hard to talk about gospel things with your children when you're just, you're just so tired. You just want to lay down and veg, right? It's hard to display it's goodness to your neighbors when you don't want to talk to them right now. It's hard to engage culture when culture is dirty and makes you uncomfortable. It's really difficult. But Jesus does it perfectly. I mean, Jesus fulfills every part of the law because Jesus embodies God's covenant faithfulness to his people. Jesus was the perfect Jew. Jesus kept every part of the law in Deuteronomy. Jesus engaged his dirty, filthy culture, not just because he was in the first century with other cultures, but he came from heaven. I mean, it's not, it's not any difference, you know what I mean? Like, you think suburbs and city is a contrast. You should try heaven to earth. I mean, that's a pretty filthy gap there. And Jesus fulfills every demand of the law and in turn rescues his people so that they can strive to love the Lord their God with every ounce of their being and to love their neighbors. Not because we're all that with a bag of chips, but because God is. Right? It's why the Shema doesn't start at verse 4, or, or why we can't just start at verse 4 with, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You must do these things. But rather, look to verses 1 through 3, where it says, Hey, look, think about what God's done. Think about who God is. Think about, the, recount the story of God's covenant faithfulness. Look at what He's done. He's made promises. He's made good on it. We can trust the Lord our God. Therefore, let's do these things. Friends, I want us to strive to love God with every ounce of our being because He is good. And we don't have to show up with our checklist and say, God, give me a list. Tell me how to do better. I want to try harder. I don't want you to try harder, people. Don't try harder. Just trust the Lord. Lean into Christ and say, Lord, I, I want to love the Lord more, but I can't. Jesus, change me. Shape my heart to love better. Right? I want to love my neighbors, but God, I'm tired. My neighbors are irritating. Not mine, but just one, some person. My neighbors are pretty cool. So we have to trust the Lord that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything the law demands, that Jesus shapes our heart to beat like his so that we would love the Lord and others. Walking in that way changes everything. The God has a checklist. It's a rhythm we step into when God rescues us through Christ, and that's good news. In fact, John Bunyan, a 17th century writer, says it perfectly this way. He says, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. 
Far better news the gospel brings, it bids us fly and gives us wings. So friends, as I close, I want us to have a time of thought. Right, if you're here today and you don't know the Lord, I'm not going to give you a checklist of what it means to do things so that the Lord will love you. Rather, I just want you to see that even the best religious, law-abiding people can be very far from God. I mean, guys that had the Bible written on their foreheads failed to see the Christ right in front of them. And I don't want that to happen to us. To look to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who saves us for his glory and our good, the only hope we have in life or death, Jesus. All right. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, we want you to know Jesus. If you are a Christian, I want you to join with me in repenting of idols and sin. We tend to love other things with our whole being more than we love God. We, we love our money. We love our status. We love our lifestyle, whatever. We tend to love ourselves more than we love our neighbors. We tend to be lazy. We're broken people. I'm a broken person. I've been kind of mopey the past couple of days and just not really feeling like, you know, just feeling it. So repent with me and let us turn to Christ and trust that he will shape us. Let me pray. Father God in heaven, thank you that you are a good and holy God, that you do wonderful things for the glory of your name and the good of your people. Lord, I pray that you would shape us, that you would save us by your grace through Christ. For those who don't know you, Lord, I pray that you would reveal your goodness to them in their hearts and minds, even right now, God. That we could trust that you've washed away our sin and our past and our baggage, and we don't have to do X, Y, and Z to earn your favor, but in Christ... We have your favor because Jesus has lived the perfect life, meeting every demand of the law in Deuteronomy and the whole Old Testament, met that on our behalf, but in turn, Lord, shapes us, changes our hearts to love you and to love others. God, I pray that that would be the case. You would give us humility. You would give us humility to repent of sin and idols. God, that you would give us humility to trust you, to rest in your finished work, that you would give us uh, empowered obedience to, to walk in the way that pleases you, that we would indeed teach these things to our children and display your love and faithfulness to our neighbors and to the city and to the culture around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.